This podcast is supported by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks, with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash the dinner party. Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. Have you heard about corduroy pillows? What about them? They're making all the headlines. Uh... I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a textured joke from Neely Jenkins mm. and Nick Wyatt of the band Tilly and the Wall. That'll help break the ice. They have a new album out called Heavy Mood, and we will be hearing some musical suggestions from them later in the show. Also, we'll speak with Wyatt Sinak, writer and comic correspondent for The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Plus, Jan Martell, author of the seafaring adventure Life of Pi, takes us on his favorite literary journeys. Mm. We hear a modern take on retro eats, and the L.A. County Museum of Art takes a shining to Stanley Kubrick. I get it. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. At his first press event since winning the election, President Obama held firm on higher taxes for the wealthy. General David Petraeus has resigned as director of the CIA. Skyfall, marking the Bond franchise's biggest opening weekend at the box office ever. Now for something you haven't heard, we're joined by Jessica Cohen. She's the editor-in-chief of Jezebel, the women's culture website. Jessica, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? This week, I'm going to be talking about the story of Lynn Harris, who's this world-class cellist. And he has a million-dollar cello, multi-million-dollar cello. And like any person with a multi-million-dollar large instrument should, he buys a second seat for that cello whenever he flies on Delta. Well, for the past 11 years, Lynn has been accruing frequent flyer miles, not just for himself, but for the cello. Okay. <laughs> wow. It's, they, they seem to make it pretty clear that to earn miles, it's your butt in a seat. Okay. But, but, but been, if you're buying a full ticket for your cello... You, you should know, get some miles somewhere. Cello should get upgraded to first well, class. I, <laughs> drink tickets. But so what's the deal? So, so he so, does this, and what's the news story? Delta, after 11 years, finally catches on, and they are very, very angry. So angry that they strip him of status and take away all of his miles. Both for him and for the cello? Presumably so. He was obviously getting double miles because of the cello, and I would think he was using the cello as its own account, mm. like Joe Cello. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> cello McCellerson. Yeah. So they took it all away. So much for that romantic trip to Salzburg. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. It's very sad. The two of them together. I understand why Delta would have a problem with this, because the more miles you accrue with a given airline, the better that given airline is going to treat you. You're mm. going to be the first to get upgrade. You are a status flyer, and they treat you really well. And the cello gets to use that bathroom up front, which yes. no one else yes. has yes. to use. That's yeah. so not fair. And the coat rack. <laughs> it's not fair. It's Unlimited rosin. Yeah. <laughs> um, so bottom line, Delta does not allow you to get frequent fly miles for your cello. Right. Which would explain why I saw Yo-Yo Ma on AirTran last week. <laughs> That's right. Spirit <laughs> exactly. Airlines all the way for him. Jessica Cohen, thanks for the small talk. Thanks for having me. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our famed history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This week back in 1979, one of the Philadelphia 76ers made a legendary slam dunk. If the Sixers are scoring, you know it's ancient history. (laughs) Here's Michelle Philippi to tell the tale. 
Before 1979, most basketball players just broke records. Daryl Dawkins taught them how to break other stuff. Dawkins was always a special player. He was the first kid ever drafted into the NBA straight out of high school. He clowned around on the court and played pranks on his own coach. And he asked announcers to introduce him in atypical fashion. From the planet Lovetron, 6'11 center, fifth year, Daryl Dawkins. But what Dawkins was really known for were slam dunks. He gave each a nickname. There was the lookout below, the turbo saxophonic delight, the yo mama. And then in a game against the Kansas City Kings, he made an epic play that deserved an epic title. That day, Dawkins leapt over defender Billy Robenzine and dunked the ball so hard, the glass backboard shattered. Shards rained onto the court and cut Robenzine's arms and legs. Fans in the audience said it sounded like a bomb had gone off. This is what's left of the Philadelphia 76ers backboard. Well, they didn't call for it. You know, it didn't have to happen, but that's Daryl Dawkins. Dawkins called the play the chocolate thunder flying, Robenzine crying, teeth shaking, glass breaking, rump roasting, bun toasting, wham bam, glass breaker, I am jam. The league had another name for it, dangerous. They made backboard breaking a finable offense, which didn't keep other players from occasionally doing it anyway. Today, NBA backboards are supposed to be shatterproof. Though Shaquille O'Neal once dunked so hard, the entire structure, backboard, basket, and pole collapsed. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the booze. I'm on the line with Paul Rodriguez. He runs Village Whiskey and Tinto, two restaurants in Philadelphia, where Daryl Dawkins first destroyed a backboard. Paul, what cocktail did Daryl's story inspire you to make? Well, the name is too good, Chocolate Thunder, so we're just going to keep that because uh, it's hard to come up with cocktail names as it is. That one's just a gimme. So that's right. Daryl Dawkins' self-given nickname was Chocolate Thunder, one of many. He also called himself Dr. Duncanstein and a bunch of others. <laughs> so what do we got? We're basically going to um, get a very high-proof bourbon okay. uh, called George Stag. Uh-huh. Um, it comes in at about 140 proof. Whew. And it's hot. We need something that's going to be, you know, thunderous. <laughs> so 141 proof means it's like 70% alcohol? Exactly. Woo! Yeah, it's dangerous, but, but, but it works. Okay. So we're going to put that in. We're going to top that with a sort of unique liqueur from Italy called Varnali Mocha, hmm. which is more of coffee-flavored, but it's got a sort of chocolate notes. Okay. Sweet. Um, so you're going to have those two layered in a shot glass. So now we have the thunder and we have the chocolate. We have thunder and chocolate. Now we're going to dash a couple of uh, chocolate bitters on top to sort of accent the chocolate. Okay. And then we're going to pour ourselves a nice pint of stout beer. And uh, we're going to delicately or not so delicately dunk the bourbon and the (laughs) uh, mocha into the uh, glass. And we're going to uh, chug. (laughs) So this is kind of like a a variation on a car bomb almost. Exactly, exactly. It's dangerous. Once you're done, uh, something's getting shattered. (laughs) Your your nerves will be shattered. Did you ever see Daryl Dawkins play? Are you familiar with him? Very familiar. Yeah, yeah. I grew up playing basketball. So, okay. you know, he was he, he committed the most personal fouls, too, in NBA history. Really? That's a dubious distinction. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That record still stands. Uh, it still stands. Philly pride. It's amazing. Exactly. There it is. <laughs> 
And Rico, to clarify, Dawkins holds the record for the most personal fouls in a season. Okay. But the record for most career fouls goes to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Really? He seems yeah. he seems so nice in airplane, though. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. But he also tried to beat up Bruce Lee and enter the dragon. Oh. So that, that, that wasn't cool. That is brave and unwise, but not cool. Yeah. <laughs> Folks, you'll find all our cocktail recipes on our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today our guest is Canadian novelist Jan Martel. He wrote the bestseller Life of Pi. The film version, directed by Ang Lee, arrives in theaters this Wednesday after a long and eventful path to the big screen. Here's Jan with a list of other great literary journeys. Hello, my name is Jan Martel. I'm the author of Life of Pi, the story of an Indian family that run a zoo in India. They decide to travel with their animals across the Pacific. The ship sinks, and so most of the story is a tale of survival at sea with the son in the family, a 16-year-old boy named Pai Patel, and this Bengal tiger that weighs 450 pounds. So in the spirit of Life of Pi, I've chosen three stories of other great journeys that both inspired me and helped me in writing Life of Pi. One is a classic of non-fiction, a book called Survive the Savage Sea. It's hard to say that ten times without getting your tongue all twisted up. Survive the Savage Sea by Dougal Robertson. Dougal Robertson was a Scottish farmer in the early 70s, and his farm wasn't doing particularly well, and he noticed that his children weren't as, as worldly as he would have hoped. He had earlier in his life been in the Merchant Marine. So he sold his farm, and with their life savings, they bought a schooner, the Lucette, and they set out to uh, sail around the world. And just out of the Galapagos Islands, they were set upon by a pod of killer whales. The schooner sank in 60 seconds, and they managed to climb aboard this little inflatable raft, and they had this dinghy, and in total they survived 38 days at sea. In the Pacific, you know, we're not talking some little large lake here. He could have seen his children eaten by sharks. Extraordinarily perilous uh, journey. They survived for 38 days. And in fact, subsequently, he wrote a manual called Sea Survival. You know, how to slaughter a turtle, how to distill water from the ocean and get fresh water. It's a how-to, one, in fact, that I used to do my research for Life of Pi. Well, the second one is an odd, odder travel journey. It's a more literary one, The Divine Comedy by Dante. Not what you'd think as normally the road trip, but in fact it is. It is the greatest road trip story ever written. It is the story of Dante, who has lost his way, and to get back to the straight way, he has to first of all travel through hell, through purgatorio, and then through paradiso, paradise, before he can get back to the straight way. The straight way, of course, being not only literally the way home, but also the straight moral way. He's fallen into sin. That journey is an extraordinary journey where he basically meets half the priests and cardinals and popes in history. And there's all kinds of sinners, and these are all people that Dante knew or knew of and hated, so they're tortured in various ways for their heinous sins. I'll give you an example, the, the last circle of hell is a frozen lake, and there's this hairy monster, and it is chewing on this great traitor in history, Judas, of course, who, who betrayed Jesus, constantly being crushed. He never dies, but he's constantly having his body crushed. So it's this wild, crazy, incredibly imaginative, tortured work with a cast of thousands. You know, sometimes we think of these old classics as being vaguely dull and only people at university will read them. Well, not at all. The Divine Comedy, it genuinely is a thrilling read. 
Okay, my third amazing、uh, travel book. In an odd sense, this is an anti-travel book. A Japanese novel called *The Sailor Who Fell from Grace with the Sea* by Yukio Mishima. The story of this Japanese woman who has a son called Noboru. He idealizes the sea. He loves the idea of traveling. And one day, his mother meets a sailor, and he's weary of that life. Noboru sees that is not pleased by what he sees. A sailor who is, you know, giving up his seafaring ways to stay with his mother, and he poisons the sailor. It's the novel where we idealize travel, don't we? Whenever we're stuck in our suburb in winter somewhere, we see a picture of Barbados or some, you know, some tropical beach somewhere, and then the appeal of disappearing into that beach is an incredibly strong pull. However, there's a negative side to that, which is that to travel is the best way to see the world, to see life without participating in it. And you meet when you're a backpacker. You meet people who've been traveling too long. They've sort of lost a sense of where they're from, who they are, which reminds us that we do have to set roots somewhere, and that's, and that's as it should be. The guest list from Jan Martel. The film version of his novel *Life of Pi* comes out this Wednesday. And Brendan, a pod、mm. of killer whales. <laughs> This is not relaxing <laughs> vacation times. No, but they make great logos on shirts you buy on vacation times. That is so weird. Jaunty, little jaunty whale on your shirt.、Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to take a break. Coming up, comic Wyatt Cenac gives us some facts to chew on. The center of the world, it's filled with oatmeal. That's where all of our oatmeal comes from. That's the tenth circle of hell, I guess. Yeah. We dig in when the dinner party continues. This podcast is supported by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of audiobooks, with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. Offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. One audiobook to consider is Joseph Anton, a memoir by Salman Rushdie. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com/slash/thedinnerparty. That's audiblepodcast.com/slash/thedinnerparty. Welcome back to the Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Newnham. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, a McSweeney's Internet Tendency author tries to feign interest in art house cinema. Something I've been doing successfully for years. That's true. You can give him pointers.、Hmm. And in a few minutes, retro restaurant expert Peter Maruzzi and I have an actual martini lunch. But first, it is time to meet our guest of honor. And this week, it's comic and writer Wyatt Cenac. He's widely known as a correspondent on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Last week, he participated in that show's live election coverage entitled "Election Night 2012: This Ends Now." <laughs> Greatest title ever.、Yeah. Very subtle. <laughs> It's a subtle name indeed. And Wyatt was also once a writer and story editor on the animated show King of the Hill.、Huh. A fact I found so surprising, I asked him if it was a lie. No, that's real. That's very real. I I,、uh, I wrote for the show. There. Some episodes that、uh, bear my name in the credits. I guess it's not that surprising, considering the fact that you were raised in Texas. Still, that show kind of has more blue-collar, redneck humor. And now you write media-savvy political satire for the Daily Show. Do comics need a background in the subject matter they're working on, or does that not matter at all? The idea is that if you're if you're a comedian, you make anything funny, or you at least try to make anything funny. Even if you were a plumber, you would probably wind up being the plumber that gets fired because you spent too much time being the funny plumber. That's a good idea, the funny plumber. You could make a lot of money. That's、uh, my new sitcom, ABC.、Uh, it's following the middle. That's a show, right? Yeah, the middle. That's、uh, more of a drama, though. Oh, okay. About middle management. Yeah, it's like The Office, but serious. 
but yeah, I mean, I think that's a big part of if you say ta- if you ask any comedian, part of the job is to examine things and try to find what's funny about them and what's funny to you. You're putting it through your filter and then presenting it to an audience, and then they find it funny, hopefully. But as a correspondent for The Daily Show, sometimes you do something a little different, which is you go into the real world, interact with real people, and then you have to turn it into comedy. I'm thinking of this one segment you did, which wasn't even for The Daily Show. I think it was for another fake news show, uh, where you visited the home of white supremacists. You're black, for those who don't know. Uh, You visited the home of this guy with a gay comedian, and you created this game show-like contest to find out who is more discriminated against, gays or blacks. That was before The Daily Show. I did a pilot called The Midnightly News. That was for that. I used to have a stand-up bit that I would do about how it seemed like gay people were becoming the new black people of discrimination. And so we found Tom Metzger, who's the leader of the white Aryan resistance. Maybe one of your listeners gets the newsletter. I don't know. So we talked to we talked to him and I went with this gay comedian. The two of us went down and we sat down and asked this guy who he hates more, gay people or black people. Who's the greater scourge to society? And there's no right answer. The black race would be more of a threat If we only had one boat, and you could either send all the blacks back to Africa or all the gays to France, which do you choose? Send the gays back to France, because France me off. Tom, I appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us. It seems like blacks still are the most discriminated group. Yeah, I guess the homos uh, lost out on this one. Was that maddening? I mean, here you are sitting across from this person who hates you because of your skin color and you have to keep it cool you have to you have to keep it funny to tom metzger's credit he was a very nice host he welcomed us into our into his home and the only weird thing that i think happened was i asked him to use the bathroom he was like oh sure it's down the hall and i went and then I was told this afterwards that he then leaned over to my producer and he was like uh, I was I was gonna tell him it doesn't say whites only on it. Uh, oh my gosh! Like there's something that's like, oh, that's kind of adorable. You like it's adorable. You hate filled man. Like you thought of this joke that you wanted to do, but then there was something in you that stopped you that said like, even though I think this person is a, is an abomination to what I believe, I still have a level of respect that I don't want to offend the guy in my house, uh, and I'm also going to let him use my bathroom. You're right. What a sweet man. For me, a lot of those experiences, it's just, it's that. It's it's an experience, and it's an interesting experience that, you know, you walk away from, from it with an interesting story, and there's something that's kind of, that can be amusing about it. All right, well, now it's time for you to experience the two questions we ask every guest on our show. And the first question is, what question are you tired of being asked? In interviews or in life? In in life, it's, hey, are you Asif Manvi from that show? Because I'm not Asif Manvi. So it's weird that they know the show, but they don't know me. For those who don't know, Asif Manvi is another correspondent on The Daily Show. Yeah, there's, there's a weird sort of people just kind of see us but don't really attach anything to us you're the funny people who aren't john stewart exactly yeah all right our second question is tell us something we don't know it can be about you or an interesting fact about the world 
Okay, something that you don't know about either me or the world. If you go to the center of the world, it's filled with oatmeal. That's where all of our oatmeal comes from. How do you know that? I am Nosferatu. I've been walking amongst you daywalkers for over 400 years. I've seen many, many things. And I also have the ability to go into caves and just keep going. That's the thing about vampires most people don't realize. They don't show you that in Twilight movies. You can just walk into a cave and go in there and hang out as long as you want and go in as deep as you want. It's the Admiral's Club for vampires. But you don't eat oatmeal. You eat blood if you're a vampire, so I'm confused about You know what? That's uh, that's a horrible stereotype. I'm sorry I said that. Yeah, that's just one of those things people say. They assume that about vampires. We eat a lot of other things. Blood is just like, it's just like a delicacy that we enjoy. But don't make me feel bad about eating it. Don't make me self-conscious about it. I'm sorry. And you have to live with that for eternity, basically, the fact that I made you feel bad now. Yeah, unless I eat all your blood. So, Brendan, glad to see you survived the interview. Yeah. Nice. I mean, fortunately, I just had a garlic and sunshine sandwich before I met with Wyatt. <laughs> Wow. So so, yeah. so those things actually work. They're not just more vampire stereotyping. That's interesting. Well, actually, they don't work, but oh. I managed to asphyxiate him with the bag it came in. Ooh. So, yeah. yeah. That's clever. Yeah. Folks, if you want to re-listen to Wyatt Sinak's last interview ever, I guess, head to our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. eavesdrop. This being a culture show, we spend a lot of time watching and talking about movies, which is not always as fun as it sounds. This week we overhear author Rodney Uller read a story about a certain kind of agony. Hi, my name is Rodney Uller. I'm a filmmaker and writer, and I recently contributed to McSweeney's Internet Tendency, a piece called A Filmgoer Tries to Feign Interest in Art House Cinema. The piece switches from his interior monologue to him having a discussion with his friend. Wait, where are they now? Why are they suddenly in a, is that a luxury arcade? God, all this character does is cry. I think he even cries in a British accent. I've had to pee forever, but I feel like the minute I leave is the minute that will explain the past 90 minutes. I should not have had that soda. They should sell cans here. Why is every size soda they sell guaranteed to make your bladder more intense than the movie? Focus. Pay attention. Why am I not getting this? Oh, wait, what's this? Wait, is it really over? Can they rewind? Surely I missed something. That could not have been the ending. They were just standing there looking at that rock. At least I think it was a rock. Maybe it was a Bible. Was this a religious movie? Even the credits are confusing. Oh no, he's going to ask me what I thought of it. I can tell he loved it. Wow is right. Man, what a movie. What did I think? Well, frankly, I'm still processing, you know? I mean, who am I to comment on something like that? There's just so much there. Right, right. The, the director was very perspicacious. I actually have to run to the bathroom. I'll only be a second. What the f*** is perspicacious? I need to stop going to movies with this guy. Sometimes I just want to see someone blow something up and then hug a puppy. That is worth 12 bucks. Oh man, I really did have to pee. I'm going to die if he tries to carry on a conversation about this film. 
I already forgot what the main character's name was. I couldn't tell if that orgy scene was real or a dream. If it was real, why were there so many cats? I don't think you could have an orgy next to that many cats. Someone is bound to get scratched. All right, if I stay here any longer, he's going to think I'm not just peeing. Hey, sorry about that. What was that? Oh yes, well, I appreciated the nonlinear narrative as well. I didn't really say that because I almost thought it was a given. I've said before that narratives are way too linear these days. I thought it was an interesting choice, uh, having that actor read his dialogue backwards. What? That was Finnish? That, that makes sense. I, I just couldn't put my finger on it. The use of what? Chiroscuro? I don't remember seeing sushi in the film. It means what? Oh, right. Yes. It's very intense shadow and contrast. Your pronunciation threw me. I've always heard it pronounced a different way. With a heavy O. Who does this joker think he is? Roger freaking Ebert? Why am I friends with these people? I bet he loved the cat orgy. I bet he saw it as a metaphorical allegory to the human condition. My condition is annoyed. If he says dramatic tension one more time, I'm going to chiroscuro his head off. I'm a friendship masochist, that's what I am. I knew I just wanted to watch Marley and me and drink Corona Lights, but no, I had to indulge this jerk. There's no way I can say anything more about this film. He's still going, unbelievable. He's quoting the New Yorker review. That's it. I can't take it anymore. For the sake of our friendship, I need to leave. For the sake of moviegoers everywhere, I have to... What's that? A bar? That sounds perfect. Absolutely perfect. No, of course you can choose. <laughs> you know me. I'm not too picky. Do I like craft beers? Oh, of course. I live for craft beers. What batch? Small batch. Yes, small batch are definitely far superior. Perspicacious, even. Rodney Uller, his piece of filmgoer tries to feign interest in arthouse cinema, appeared in this month's McSweeney's Internet Tendency, and you're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. Why can't we just call it USA Radio? And now it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. And Brendan, this week... I went back in time. Uh-oh. That's true. Another Back to the Future marathon? No. That's not what happened <laughs> You at should all. go back in time and make the sequels better. I don't... <laughs> I would love to. But I'm talking about old-fashioned American restaurants. Places with white tablecloths, you know, where they serve stuff like Oysters Rockefeller. Yum. Indeed. For a while now, there's been a little trend of people rediscovering these retro eateries. Some of them are over a century old. And there's a new coffee table book about them called Classic Dining. So this week I met up with the author, Peter Maruzzi, at an appropriate location. We are in Musso and Frank's Grill, one of the oldest restaurants, if not the oldest restaurant in Hollywood. And it has everything you want in a classic restaurant. Dark wood walls, beautiful vinyl booths, red vinyl booths, great big bar with bartenders who know how to make great cocktails. It has an exhibition grill. What does that mean? Meaning that you can actually see them cook the meat as opposed to them doing it in the back kitchen. And they use charcoal instead of gas. Charcoal broiled tastes so much better. You've got to have charcoal. Oh, and our drinks have arrived, which are gin martini with two olives. And then they serve it with a little carafe of extra martini that you can then pour into your glass when you finish drinking. And I should note that I'm also having a martini, making this the first actual martini lunch that I've ever taken <laughs> while on the job. Cheers. So we also have the waiters wearing red vests. A lot of them feel like they've worked here since it opened. What is it about places like this that first appealed to you? Well, I, I just think that they 
harken back to an earlier era and that it is so hard now, unfortunately, in America to find places like this because there are so many contemporary restaurants that have, you know, the hard services and it's very loud and they have, you know, they have young waiters that are excellent. But this is part of American history. This is the way people used to eat and drink and spend the whole night. It's wonderful. I mean, it's just like people who appreciate old movies or old architecture. It's honoring our past and also experiencing the fun of that era. You went around the country visiting places like this. First of all, what do you think is your favorite spot? Well, overall, New Orleans is probably the best. I mean, I love New York, and I love the they have you know great steakhouses. But I, you know, I just love New Orleans. The, the restaurants are most of them from the 19th century, and they're in these old buildings, and you know, and they have weird cocktails and things that you know catch on fire. And what's a good example? You know, I once had something called Cafe Brulot which they serve after dinner in New Orleans and Galatoire's, a really great old restaurant. So in the, in the punch bowl is coffee, and then there's like cinnamon sticks floating, and, and then the captain comes to your table, and he has a big pitcher of brandy, and he holds it way up high, and he pours it, and then he sets it on fire and pours this flaming brandy into the punch bowl of coffee. Just like a flamethrower made of alcohol. Yeah, exactly, and you've got to be careful it doesn't splash in you. So you start drinking it like it's a regular cup of coffee because you don't really taste the brandy. And then you go outside and you're just plastered. It's unbelievable how strong this thing is. Sunlight hurts at that point. Yeah, it's, it's just something else. So the kind of food they serve at these kind of restaurants, is there, you know, is there a name for it? Is this a type, a genre of food? Yeah, traditionally, it's been called continental-style fine dining. And the origins of it are, are French. French was the high-end cuisine in, in America for 19th century and most of the 20th century, but it's been Americanized. So really it's French, but then with American... Fancy, but made even more decadent. Yeah, I'd say that's right. And when does that come about? Pretty much all of these things that we're talking about really were perfected after World War II because Americans had money, they were excited about going out to eat, these restaurants were competing, and they, they had to come up with new ideas all the time. And so a lot of these things really were formed and perfected between, let's say, 1945 and 1965. And maybe also because soldiers had just come back from maybe fighting in some of these places, France, and gotten a taste for it? True. In fact, you know, a lot of the Polynesian restaurants were popular because a lot of soldiers in World War II had been in the Pacific, and they had started eating unusual things that they wouldn't have found ordinarily. So then the tiki restaurants, the Polynesian restaurants, sort of played off on that. Um, oh, and our waiter is here. Let's order. You know, for the lobster thermidor, do you get two halves? Yeah, that sure sounds good. Okay, the lobster thermidor. Why not? Excellent choice. I know. And I'm going to go with the Welsh rarebit. Basically a big bowl of cheese. Thank you. No salads for us. This is old school. But speaking of historic restaurants, Lowry's the Prime Rib in Beverly Hills on La Cienega was opened in 1938, and they came up with the idea of serving salad before dinner. Up to that point, it was always after dinner. Was that in America in general? Like, people would not eat salad before dinner? Yeah, and according to um, Richard Frank, who's the son of the original co-founder, and, and he's like 93, he said that it was because in California you could get salad all year long, whereas back east in the Midwest, they only had salad certain times of the year. So it was kind of just show off the fact that California has salad all year long, so they served it right away. They're like, check this out, lettuce. Right, in the dead of winter. That's amazing. But still, when I think of classic restaurants, I think of long, heavy meals, you know. You're meant to spend time at the meal. There's no rush. You go through, you know, from cocktails to the relish tray to oysters Rockefeller to, you know, the lobster thermidor, and then you have cognac and cherries jubilee. So, I mean, it's a whole diet food, I would say. 
I mean, I guess if you ate as much as they used to eat at these places back then, yes, you would be heavy, but you'd be smoking and drinking a lot more. So, you know, it's all part of the package. Who knows what actually killed you? It might have just as well have been the cigars. Right. I'd rather die with, for eating too much lobster Thermidor than smoking, you know, camels. Peter Maruzzi. His new book is called Classic Dining. And Brendan, uh, here's some more classic food trivia for you. You ready? Okay. The Caesar salad. All right, I dig it. Actually invented in Mexico. Mm. Apparently by an Italian, yes, named Cesar Cardini. Okay. He ran a restaurant in Tijuana. They ran out of supplies one day, and the story goes he made the salad out of the only stuff left in the fridge, the anchovies, <laughs> eggs, you know, all, all the leftovers. All right, well, this kind of makes sense because the Italians invented tacos, right? <laughs> because really? Because they're just basically tiny folded pizzas. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Made of totally different ingredients. Still pizzas. Folks, coming up, the band Tilly and the Wall suggest some tunes, and we learn whether Stanley Kubrick was a cat person or a dog person. At long last. Yeah. When the dinner party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we pay a visit to the first American museum exhibit about filmmaker Stanley Kubrick. Plus, pop band Tilly and the Wall tell us about their dinner parties. I think it's fun as a host to kind of play with how your guests are feeling. Ominous. And speaking of behavior modification, it is time for our etiquette segment. That's right. Every week you ask us questions about how to behave, and when celebrity guests just can't quite crack them, we turn to a couple of actual experts. Nice. That would be Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senig, the great-great-grandkids of Emily Post herself. They stop by our studios once a month to grace us with their wisdom. They're co-authors of the 18th edition of the Emily Post Manners Manual, and they help run the Emily Post Institute in lovely Vermont. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you so much, gentlemen. And is Vermont lovely right now? Because it's pretty cold. It's You know, it's cold, but the sun is shining. Okay. Mm. So that makes people polite, right? I would, yeah. We, I would think rudeness might go up as the temperature goes down and things get grayer. People get sadder. No, people get really cuddly. Oh, <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah, it's cold, Build snuggly. fire. Well, cuddling yeah. could be a problem if you start cuddling like the gas station attendant or something, you know. <laughs> So. I don't know. It depends on the gas station. Okay. Oh, so back right. to etiquette. <laughs> All right. Well, let's just Quickly. jump right in it then. Yeah. Here's a, here's a question. This is from Carl in Kyrgyzstan. Ooh. Yes. We have fans in Kyrgyzstan, it turns out. Wow. We're big in Kyrgyzstan. We're huge in Kyrgyzstan. Carl writes, <laughs> I am frequently a guest of honor at dinner parties here in Kyrgyzstan. Ooh. I'm going to say Kyrgyzstan as much as yeah, possible. Yeah. Say it three more times. Like let's it. say it three times fast. My lips will fall off. Kyrgyzstan. Uh, Carl writes, I am also totally left-handed. Back, in Kyrgyzstan. Okay. In Kyrgyzstan. Back in the States, I would choose to sit at the far left or the end of the table so as not to bump elbows with people. But here, left-handedness is still often corrected and looked at as strange, if not rude, when eating. Do I continue hmm. to eat as I normally would and try to explain this trait to guests, or should I politely eat right-handed and risk getting food all over my lap? So a cultural assimilation question. Yeah. A, a little of both. The the left-handed eater definitely faces a, a, a pretty strong cultural norm that you hold that knife in the right hand, but it's, right. it's a safety trumps etiquette. You want to have the knife in your <laughs> dominant hand. It's, it's not only acceptable, it's appropriate if that's really the dominant hand. But do you speak with knowledge of Kyrgyzstan, though? Is that yes. okay in Kyrgyzstan? That's what I was about to say, <laughs> is that bear in mind that, you know, our etiquette expertise really stays within the American border. <laughs> 
Um, sometimes it ventures to Canada. Honestly, I would probably ask my host what they thought about it. Um, I would take some time to ask some locals what they, just what they think so that I could get a better idea for myself of what I would then feel comfortable doing or not doing. But what if the um, response is, you know, yeah, just what if eat- like Carl, we think you're crazy. <laughs> we think you're a demon child. You should be burned. Well, you know, uh, this... this <laughs> but seriously, what if the answer is that you should just keep, you should eat with your right hand? And seriously, he says he'll, he'll dump things on his lap. Well, I mean, if it's really going to be that much of an issue or if it's going to be disrespectful... In another country, practice at home, learn to be ambidextrous with your eating. But I'll tell you what, was it Carl was describing? Yeah. Happens to folks, which is the winging of the arms when you eat. Happens whether you're right or left-handed. And just learning to relax the elbows, let them drop down to your side. Whichever hand you're eating with is uh, a, a wow. good thing to think about. I wish you guys had the visual of demonstration manners. of that. <laughs> I love that All politeness right. can lead to actual physical changes. That's interesting. That's right. No, it definitely can. Good posture. So important. Oh, that's All right, Carl, good luck with that. Here is a question from Amanda. This comes via Facebook. And this is actually a question we've had on the show before, but to be honest, it was posed to a couple of comedians, so they may not have given us the most And a lot of people sent this question to us this week. That is right. In the wake of the election, writes Amanda via Facebook, Uh. how do we avoid those awful political conversations at the Thanksgiving dinner table besides sitting at the kids' table? (laughs) Like the plague. Dan, you want to take this one? (laughs) What was it? The the NTT, not table talk? Oh, yeah. Sex, religion, (laughs) politics. Save it for um, when mom hasn't worked all week and Mm. having a couple other uh, conversation topics so that you're able to steer the conversation a different direction but it is so hard though especially during an election season it is so in the ether how do you really avoid it is every host's responsibility to keep tabs on the conversation that's going on at the table and it is perfectly okay for a host to say you know what we're not going to go here. And you can do it mm. with humor. You can do it with grace. You know, you don't have to be as <laughs> hard-handed as it as I would be. <laughs> I think what makes this a tough week, though, is because lots of people who are kind of maybe in control of their households are at people, other people's homes. Yeah. And you can't right. really steer the conversation. So I guess the solution would be not to be angry at those people who are talking about politics, but to be angry at whoever the host is for not nipping it in the bud. There you go. Damn those hosts. I just want someone to be angry at. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you, there are a couple tactics we often advise if you don't participate in an argument, it's hard for someone to continue to argue. Don't you love that? I love that. The difference between a conversation <laughs> argument is huge. And a, yeah. a, a willingness to cede the last word, to step back, to acknowledge someone else's opinion is, is often enough as a participant to diffuse and just dial the whole thing way, way back. Yeah. Daniel, you're wrong, though. That's the problem. You're totally <laughs> Can I have the turkey, please? What you just said is wrong. Someone want to pass the gravy? <laughs> no, I think we should talk about this right now. You've been coming on our show <laughs> acting like you Did know the rules. anybody see that movie last night? <laughs> Love that movie. Go Saints. Go Saints. All right. All right. <laughs> oh, no. Don't get right. us started. I think, I think we answered that question for Amanda. Um, here is a question that just when we read it, we said we, yeah. we've got to put this on here. It's uh, sure. super important. Awesome. This is on. It's on everybody's mind. Absolutely. This comes from Joshua via Facebook. He writes, how come nobody will eat my excellent cranberry sauce? <laughs> Do you guys know? You, what's, we've been really. I mean, what's going on? Well, it's probably the crunchy variety. Yeah, so. I really, I don't like Joshua's. I've been putting it up on my Facebook page that people shouldn't eat it. Oh, I mean, man. there should yeah. be a smooth option on the table. There really should. Wow. So Joshua, there you have it. I mean, they, yeah. we don't eat it because it's not good. It's. I should also point you. out Joshua's left-handed, which could have something to do. <laughs> oh my god, favorite. burn him in Kyrgyzstan. All right, thanks so much for telling our audience how to behave, guys. Thank you. You're most welcome. 
Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning. They are the great-great-grandchildren of Emily Post and co-authors of the 18th edition of the Emily Post Manners Manual. And here's an etiquette tip. If you have a question about how to behave, it would be rude not to send it to us. Of course. You can do so via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org, or call the Dinner Party Hotline, a.k.a. the phone in my cubicle. It's 213-621-3554. And now, time for Chattering Class. This is where we're schooled by an expert on some dinner party-worthy topic. Today, the very dinner party-worthy topic is Stanley Kubrick, the great filmmaker. And our teacher is Patty Podesta. She is a production designer of some renown. She worked on films like Memento and uh, Jurassic Park. She is also the designer of Stanley Kubrick, the first ever American retrospective of Stanley Kubrick here at the Los Angeles County Museum of Modern Art. It's uh, on now through next year, and Patty, welcome. Nice to talk to you. And likewise. Now, this may be hard to believe, but some in our audience may be too young to have actually seen Kubrick's films, certainly in their first release. For them, how would you describe Stanley Kubrick? Stanley Kubrick was a superlative film director. Uh, He made 13 films, and they were all cinematic masterpieces, such as 2001. Paths of Glory, his first masterpiece, which you've never seen it, will just bowl you over. It's an amazing film that he made when he was 30 years old. About World War I. About World War I and in the trenches using a dollying technique that nobody else had ever used before. The Shining, which I think most people have seen. Unfortunately for some of them because they'll never sleep again. <laughs> but it's so funny. He has such a good, wicked sense of humor about popular culture in the film. I, I don't find it. Um, it doesn't mean make me sleepless. He wasn't a sadist in regards to horror. He was really interested in the movement from the psychological to the paranormal. Meaning what? The Jack starts out, you think that the problems are psychological. And eventually you realize that there is a paranormal presence that cannot be denied. And he said, by the time you realize this, you're completely sucked into the film and you have to go with it. You can't question it. <laughs> it's just like, there ghosts, deal with it, yo. That's right. This is a massive exhibit for a guy who basically changed film in almost every way imaginable. When you started designing this, where did you start? I started by reading every interview he had ever given, a couple months worth of reading and watching all the films again and really trying to immerse myself as if it was a script in a certain way, as if it was the material I was thinking about bringing to the screen. What was the thing that most surprised you? I know that you've even taught classes about Kubrick. Was there something you didn't know that sort of slapped you in the face? A couple silly things leapt out at me, that he loves animals and that he loves cats. And then he wrote a 17-page letter about how to care for his cats when he was on location with Barry Lyndon. And, and what, what does that letter say? He, it's to his, one of his daughters who was staying behind to take care of the house. And he specifically talks about the behaviors of these two cats that cannot be in the room together. And he talks about how to um, separate them. <laughs> the, the study of their behavior is remarkable. It's, it's really precise. And I, it, it opened up a conversation with me, and I'm an animal lover, and a number of my friends, with how many pages is your cat letter that you leave for the cat sitters when you go? And nobody's is 17 pages, but I, I've heard five. <laughs> I love that he used the same detail that he applies to like making one of the great sci-fi movies of all time, 2001, he applies to his cat. That's exactly it. I'll tell you one more story, which I know you're going to cut this. You may not want to use this, but I felt I had to ask 
Christiane Kubrick when she was here. His wife. His wife. About him faking the, the moon landings because somebody had emailed me while I was designing the shows and said, well, you're going to represent the fact that he, that he faked the moon landings, aren't you? <laughs> this is like a, a typical conspiracy theory that Kubrick actually shot the so-called moon landing of 1969. But the beautiful end of the story is that they watched the moon landing all together, her whole family, and Kubrick was really unhappy that he had not made the earth blue enough. In 2001? And he was mad for many days that he had not gotten it exactly right. <laughs> Typical. Beautiful. True to form for the person who is always on top of technology. You know, sometimes he was the innovator of it. Sometimes he was the person who discovered it. And I said to somebody else recently, he had a kind of technological patience. Sometimes he would not make a movie if he could not find the right technology to produce what was in his imagination. For instance, AI. Spielberg ended up making AI after Kubrick died, actually. That's right. Um, Kubrick took it on a number of times and then put it down because he couldn't figure out how to shoot the blue boy, which is how it was written originally. The android was blue. Oh, man. He's somewhere Kubrick is looking down and seeing Avatar and going, damn, if I just had a few more years. years. Exactly. That's exactly it. Who knows what it would have been like. But it's a great movie anyway. It's true. It is, it is kind of sad that Kubrick didn't get to mess around a little more with computer animation, etc. He would have done amazing things. His wife, Christiane, told me he only slept four hours a night because he was researching everything, and she said he would have never slept if the internet would have been um, really going when he was alive, and she's kind of happy it wasn't. <laughs> and Rico, you went away on vacation recently, didn't you? Yeah, my letter to the cat sitter was five pages long, if that's what you're asking. I, I was. Okay. You, so you're not Kubrick-level epic. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was thinking, though, we, we should hire top directors to fake all major news events. You know, like you could have Scorsese doing the Super Bowl. That would be oh, amazing yeah. and bloody. Yeah. You know, the fiscal cliff negotiations could be done by James Cameron. With lasers. Yeah. Sold. All right. We've given you Kubrickian conversation starters, taught you some manners. Only one thing remains for a perfect dinner party some music to play. For that, we turn to Omaha band Tilly and the Wall. You might know them as the group with a tap dancer instead of a drummer. They are on tour now to support their new album, Heavy Mood, which, as you'll see, is not what hangs over their dinner parties. Here they are with some musical suggestions. Hi, I'm Nick from Tilly and the Wall. Hi, I'm Neely. And we're so excited to be here at the dinner party, and we're really excited about our new album, Heavy Mood. Here is our dinner party playlist. Well, the first song I chose is called Christine by House of Love. And I think it came out in the early 90s. So it's kind of an airy, ambient sort of song. As people would enter the party, I imagine them just kind of hearing it in the background and discussing it like, oh, I haven't heard this song in a long time. It's just a nice song for people to still listen to, but carry on a conversation as well. It's a beautiful melody, and it's one that you can really grasp onto, I think, even not knowing the song. Yeah, it's very catchy. It brings back the memories of me and my friends. Like, my friend had a convertible, which was hilarious in Lincoln, Nebraska, because you could only be in it <laughs> during the summertime, but we would just rock that music and just drive around and just be young and silly. 
So then I wanted to flip the script a little bit, and I picked this song, Talk With My Body by Faye. I was picturing like everyone deep in conversation at this point, and uh, I wanted something a little, a little hypnotizing with not too many words that just repeats, I eat with my mouth, I talk with my body. I eat with my mouth, I talk with my body. And it, it, I could see it not making people uncomfortable, but making them slightly self-conscious. And I think it's fun as a host to kind of play with how your uh, guests are feeling. Nick is so good at picking out songs, and there are usually, even touring, like in the van, he'll play um, his playlist, and they're always intriguing and fun. And often annoying. <laughs> like, I'm no. trying to sleep. <laughs> the next song for our playlist is by A.A. A. Bondi. It's called Among the Vines. It's an amazing song, just lyrically. You can have the day on the restless tide you play, and I will lay among the pines till the night comes rolling in. And I feel like at this point, maybe dinner's finishing and everyone's kind of tipsy because they've had some wine with dinner, and it's a really like mellow vibe, but you can also dance to it, especially if you've had a few drinks and maybe some matchmaking has been happening and people are kind of like chilling out, listening to the song. It's so beautiful. So this song is gonna extend the romance. Keeping the romance alive. And every time I leave the South A word it stumbles from my mouth Every time this song comes on at our apartment, my boyfriend Alan will stand up and we slow dance to it. Aww. So I thought it'd be a really good way to end the night. Cause the night comes rolling in If I had to pick one of our own songs for a dinner party, I would pick All Kinds of Guns off our new album. It's really a celebration of someone you love. It's got a kick to it, so... It's playfully aggressive. Yes. Dinner Party soundtrack from Nick White and Neely Jenkins of Tilly and the Wall. They're on tour now, and that's the dinner party for this week, folks. Yes, next week it is the granddaddy of all dinner parties, so brace yourselves for an all-food Thanksgiving show. Jackson Musker is granddaddy of all assistant producers of the dinner party. Yeah. Tamika Adams and James Kim are our interns. Thanks also to Ravi Carmen, Peter Clowney, and our friends at the public radio show Marketplace. Bon appétit. Bon appétit.